Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. I'm Greg Paris. I know you're excited about rejoining the story in two weeks. We're going to start in the New Testament. If you do not have a book that called The Story, you can purchase one on the way out. Uh, buy one, hand, hand one or two of them to a friend. We are going to uh, begin with the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became a man in the world and showed us the way to God, and it's going to be great. So I know you're enthused about that and looking forward to it just in two more weeks. It's going to be great. Let me ask you this question. Can you imagine being Josh Harris? Wrote his first book at the age of 22, became a New York Times bestseller. Josh was strong on giving advice on marriage, on building and growing your faith, living a pure life. He pastored a great church for over 20 years. But somewhere along the way, his faith evaporated. Curiosity, isn't it? Amazing. In 2019, he announced his marriage had come to an end. Then a a follow-up post on Instagram, he revealed an even deeper divorce. He said, and I quote, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people have told me there are different ways to practice your faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Deconstructing your faith has now become popular in our culture. Now, let me just make this statement. Are you listening to your pastor? Listen, listen. I am not impressed. I'm not impressed. I'm not moved. I'm not, I'm not uh, astonished. I'm not surprised. I'm just not impressed with any of this. There is nothing new about people losing their faith. There's nothing new under the sun. In time immemorial, people have lost their faith. It's interesting because now it's used with the pseudo-intellectual language of deconstruction in order to describe it. It's old thinking packaged now in trendy postmodern language. And I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed with virtually anything related to postmodernism. Not interested, not curious, not impressed, not shocked, not surprised, not playing along. Today's sermon is entitled, The Falling Away, subtitled, We Won't Be Participating. Can I get an amen? We're not playing along, not going there. It's become trendy to walk away from your faith. It's popular, attention-grabbing. Um, people, people, I think, filled with a lack of self-awareness, probably some insecurities, under the weight and pressure, compression of modern culture and secular culture that's driving people away from Christian ideas and values. And so you can understand how it is happening. There's all kinds of complexities around it. But no, not playing along. Josh Harris is now selling, quote, steps through deconstruction. Packages ranging from $270 to $1,700. He, 
He discards the faith but keeps the capital flowing. Really. Discards the faith and then finds a way to profit from it. Now, I'm at a stage in an age of my life when I feel like I could say just about anything I want. (laughs) But I'm going to resist the temptation to start talking about that right now. I have followed Jesus now for 51 years. I've seen many, many people fall away from the faith, assuming they ever had it to begin with. When I, when I knelt at an altar of my little Methodist church all of those years ago, 51 years ago, there were many other young people at the altar. I was 16, and there were probably 20 other teenagers kneeling at the same altar in the same church at the same time receiving Jesus. And a good number of those people have long since abandoned following Jesus. I say again, there's nothing new under the sun. The falling away is now happening to more pastors than ever before. A recent op-ed said everybody's leaving Christianity and nobody knows where they're going. A new word has been coined. No longer evangelicals, now they're described as ex-evangelicals. I'm not impressed. I don't care. It's not, it's not a surprise. I'm not playing along. I'm not participating. As I say, this is nothing new. Many in history have picked up the banner of Christ only to lay it down again. It happened as early as the first century. Maybe some of you remember this little phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the young evangelist Timothy, and he just simply says this phrase. Listen to this. For Demas, this is the, the name of a guy, a mutual friend of theirs, For Demas has forsaken me, the Apostle Paul said, having loved this present world. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Shazam. Somebody's gotten distracted by the world and walked away from Jesus. Recent headlines and statistics are not encouraging. There are more than 72 million millennials in America, almost one quarter of the population, An increasingly large portion of millennials are walking away from a faith of any kind, choosing to identify themselves as religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, no affiliation. Researchers in 2008 noted that one-third, about 33%, of all millennials described themselves as religiously unaffiliated. Ten years later, that number had grown to 42%. There's more trouble, it seems. Church members in America have suffered a a decades-long decline. Gallup first measured church membership beginning in 1937, and at that time, 73% of Americans belonged to a church. Pretty big number. In the 1980s, it was 70%. In 2000, it was 65%. By 2010, it was 59%. And today, less than half of Americans, 47%, are part of a church. It's It's a downward trend. We're not playing along. Not playing along. Falling away from the church or falling away from the faith is serious, but it's a deeper reflection, and this is, and this is the, the real sobering part of it, that it is a greater reflection of people actually falling away from Jesus. It's one thing to drift away from the church. It's one thing to drift away from religion, but it's another thing to drift away from Jesus. That, that makes no sense to me at all. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 29 said, people who know Jesus, embrace Jesus as their personal savior and then walk away from their faith in Jesus, these are people 
described as those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified their lives and insulted the Spirit of grace. Now think about that imagery. You're trampling under, under your feet. Jesus, you are, you are making unholy the thing that actually sanctified you, separated you from your sins and made you right with God, the, the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and you have insulted the, the Holy Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul says later in one of his epistles that when you walk away from your faith in Jesus, you are in essence putting Jesus on the cross of God again. You crucify afresh the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. It's serious business. So I want to answer three simple questions this morning in regards to this phenomenon of falling away. The first question is, what does this mean? What does it mean? Now, remember, this isn't referring to atheists or those who have chosen other faiths in the world. The concept of falling away has a narrower focus. I think you understand. It has specific implication for those who follow Jesus and then turn their backs on him. Every apostate is an unbeliever, but not every unbeliever is apostate. I mean, you can't you can't become apostate or fall away from a faith that you didn't know anything about. So if you, you ha- if you know Jesus, then you can become apostate by turning your back on Jesus. The apostate is well acquainted with the gospel enough to be saved but walks away from it anyway. <clears throat> Ernest Hemingway said in The Sun Always Rises, this quote, there are two ways to go bankrupt, gradually and then suddenly. Well, it's the same with spiritual bankruptcy. We can drift away slowly or we can drift away by the force of a devastating event. So why is this important? Why ask the question, what does it mean? It's because in an important biblical prediction that we will refer to in just a moment, the Bible actually predicts a period of time when people would fall away. And it is connected with a sign of the end of the times. Now this part of it, gets my attention. Look on the screen at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a, note the context. This is about Jesus coming back. And our gathering together to him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit, word, or letter, as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. You see that? Will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the Antichrist, the son of perdition. Now, this is a prophecy, of course, about tomorrow, but it could very well have implications for today because I've just given you statistical evidence that there is a great falling away that is happening in our culture right now and in our world. This is an, this is an interesting moment. This falling away Paul is referring to is more than a gradual defection from the church. He calls it the falling away. So there it is. And now we we are identifying that kind of phenomenon in our day, in our world. Now, if this pertains to this prophecy in 2 Thessalonians, then we should be alert to this. What, 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 what does this imply? If, if we really are approaching the last days of time, and who knows? But if this is a sign of the end of the times, the Bible's clearly predicting, then could it be that we, there are implications for our moment, 
for our lives in these times. And if, if there are implications, then what are those implications? Well, we know, we know a few things that the Bible seems to be clear in its prediction of with regard to end times, the last days. One thing is, is an event called a rapture. A rapture is simply a term, a concept that implies that God is going to snatch away from the earth all of those true followers of him. At some point, a rapture will occur and people will be taken away. A man, two men will be standing in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. That's the kind of imagery. And so, and so we have this, this curious phenomenon of a rapture. People ask me, do you believe in the rapture? And I said, I don't, I don't know if the rapture is true or not, but I hope it is. The reason I hope it's true is because what follows the raptures is what the Bible describes as the tribulation. There are two phases of a seven-year period, and this is clearly defined in the scripture prophetically. There's going to be a seven-year period called the tribulation. The first three and a half years, the first half of it is called the tribulation, and it's a period of relative peace. And the last three and a half years is called the great tribulation, and this is going to be hell on earth. Jesus put it this way. He said, the night is coming when no one can work. He said, as long as it's still today, you should get busy and work because night is coming. And this is what he was referring to. He said, there's going to be a moment on the earth in the last days when it's hell on earth. And listen, there won't be any opportunity to work. Everybody is in 100% survival mode because it's hell. And people are dying by the, by the millions and millions. It's going to be horrific. And so this is why I'm hopeful and of a rapture. Let me just give you a timeline. The rapture could happen at any moment. There are no pro uh, prophetic predictions in the Bible required yet to be met in order for the rapture to occur. The rapture could happen today. could happen tonight. No man knows the day or the hour, but it could happen anytime. That's why it's just uh, prudent to be prepared. You can't protect yourself from all, everything that's going to happen, but you can be prepared. And you prepare yourself by placing your faith and trust in Jesus. That way you're ready to go no matter what. And so the rapture could occur at any time and then followed by the tribulation and the great tribulation as I've described it. And so today we can say, look, it's still daytime. It's not night. We're not in the great tribulation. We know that or it'd be hell and it's not hell. I mean, look at us. We're all here and it's a nice day and God is present and we're enjoying the opportunity to worship together. And so this is a day when the light is still on and there's opportunity to work. And so don't panic. Don't panic because we can still get busy offering Jesus to the world around us. And, and that is exactly what we should do and that's exactly what we are doing. Continue to let the light shine. Many predict before Jesus comes there will be a great worldwide revival. And I hope they're right in those predictions. And if there is a big worldwide revival, I want to be part of it. Don't you? I, I do, and, and perhaps we're going to see brush fires or, or, or little moments of, of incredible blessing and favor uh, here and there around the world. And, and I like to think that we're seeing something like that right now in our own life, in our own church. And so I'm for that. I hope it's true. But the Bible isn't clear about that sort of thing. What the Bible is clear about is that there is going to be a falling away, and we should be alert to it. 
1 John chapter 2, look on the screen with me. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. See, you hear the distinction? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, this is an indication that people left the church, but they were never really in the church. They went out from us, John reports, but they were never really of us. You heard me say last week that, that many people are speculating that COVID has really damaged the church uh, in, in the world. And I don't think COVID has damaged the church. I think COVID has revealed the church. COVID's now just become uh, an, an easy excuse for folks who maybe don't know Jesus to begin with and have just totally disengaged. And this is explaining that here in 1 John. So here's the second question I want to answer. Why is it important? Here's the second one. How could people fall away? I mean, if you really know Jesus, how could you turn your back on him? Well, first, some people fall away because they're deceived. Look on the screen at 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Right there it is again, another predictive departing giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So apparently, there are unseen demonic forces operating in our world, deceiving people and seducing people and enticing people away from the faith. The Bible predicts here that the last days will see false teachers who traffic in lies and deceit and hypocrisy. <clears throat> These will be men and women that it will attempt to manipulate God's people away from the, f the true faith and, and the virtuous life of, of Christian living. These, these leaders will be cold, calculating, selfish, motivated by money and power and control. By the way, we're seeing this, we're seeing this unfold before our eyes in the mainline denomination, historic denominations here in the United States, where leadership in these denominations have become apostate. Not all. Some have become apostate and, and fit this identification of cold and calculating and selfish perfectly, driven by money and power and control. They no longer, the Bible says, have any moral sensitivity and their spiritual compasses have been broken. Their, their consciences have been seared like with a hot iron. So folks can't see light from dark, right from wrong, the truth from deceit. And so it gets perpetuated in the culture. And so some people fall away because they're deceived. The second reason some people fall away is because they're disillusioned. Maybe you can identify with this. In Luke chapter 8, we have this famous parable of Jesus. He said, a farmer went out to sow his seeds. And uh, it says he was scattering the seeds. Some fell among the path. It was trampled on. The birds ate it. Some fell on rocky ground. When it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell on among the thorns, which grew up and got choked out. The plants still other fell on good soil, and it came up, yielded a crop a hundred times. So we get this, we get this metaphor, and we, and we understand. And then the next verses explains it. Jesus said, you know, it's not just the birds ate the seed, but, but really the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. And the same thing with being sown among the thorns, that it chokes them out, and so forth. And so we learn a couple lessons here. One is the devil steals the word. So the word can be faithfully proclaimed, and the devil can steal it before you get to the parking lot. 
I'm talking to people right now who need to hear this sermon. I would, just, I would just say that I haven't preached a more important sermon for a long, long time than what I'm doing right now. I haven't preached a sermon that's more relevant than this subject for a long, long time. I can't remember. And so, I, so the truth is going out. The seed is being sown and scattered. And the problem is most of you, most of you will have some reluctance about making the application. And some of you will actually have the seed stolen from you before you get to, the, get to your car and get home. Because the, the devil's real and he wants to take the seed. And another thing, we, another thing we realize is that people actually receive the word of God with joy. And so there's emotion and passion and a newfound faith. And many people see a pathway of hope and peace and purpose and meaning. But they, they don't take, take the pains to put their roots down and to, and to take their next steps and to engage the kinds of disciplines necessary. And when times of testing come, then they fall away. These are folks who are looking for a solution to their problems, but not looking for a savior. They want their problems to go away without the necessary commitment and sacrifice of following Jesus. Let me just give you some news, and this may not be good news for some of you. Following Jesus is a commitment. It costs you something. Okay, what does it cost? It costs everything. Here's the way the deal works. You take your life, all of it, and you give it in trusting faith to Jesus Christ, and then he replaces your one and only life with his best life full of abundant and eternal hope. That's how the deal works. You say yes to Jesus. This isn't, this isn't like a patch on a bad spot in your life. This is surrender my life to Jesus, the world behind me, the cross before me. And then the life of God flows to that. So people want the blessing oftentimes without the burden. They receive Christ with joy and equal amounts of passion, but then when hard times come and something bad happens, they fall away. It's in perfect keeping with the parable. So we know that people become disillusioned. A third reason people fall away is because they are distracted. In Luke chapter 8, verse 14, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. They don't mature. So people take a hold of the world with both hands, and they don't have any hands left to reach for Jesus. This is back to Demas, you know, the friend of Paul and Timothy, who left the faith because he loved this present world. And this happens to people every day, doesn't it? Something, something gets our attention. We get distracted. Something shiny or something soft or something that tastes good or something that dulls my pain. And somehow we get distracted and we turn our hands away from Jesus and reach for something else, some lesser thing. Jesus said that many fall away simply because they get distracted. And it happens to, happens to all of us from time to time. Some of you right now, for example, are as close to Jesus as you've ever been in your life. Maybe you're relatively new in the faith, or maybe you've been following Jesus for 50 years, and you're as close to Jesus as you've ever been, and it's a joyful moment for you, a season of your life. But there are others of us that I know within the sound of my voice, you met Jesus maybe a long time ago, and you've been in love with Jesus and passionate for Jesus and living for Jesus, and you're not doing that as well as you were. And you're in a different position right now. 
You've been distracted. Life happens, doesn't it? And if, if you're not devoted and intentional and disciplined in these areas, life will knock the faith out of you. And so folks get distracted. But Luke 8, 15 says, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. That's what you want. So let me answer this third question. Where do we go from here? All of us find ourselves on some place on the continuum of commitment and passion for Jesus, fruitfulness in our lives. And so, and so we ask, where do we go from here? Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian man, a theologian, brilliant author, wrote a book near the end of his life. This has been a few, a few decades ago now. And the book was entitled, How, How Then Shall We Live? It was a Christian classic. It has it become a seminal work for how to live the Christian life in the middle of a difficult culture and generation. How then shall we live? Dr. Schaefer, at the end of his life, went on a, a lecture tour talking to people in all kinds of settings, mostly academic settings because of his, his uh, high skills, challenging Christians around the world how we should then live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And his book and his lectures were inspirational. You might be interested to know that one of our parishioners who's now in heaven, his name was Estel Love. Estel was a truck driver by profession and also drove buses, um, these coaches that transported people around the country. And so he was a driver for hire and he would take Christian music groups around and other personalities around. And the last months of Francis Schaeffer's life as he was dying of cancer, Essel Love, our prisoner, drove Dr. Schaefer from place to place around the country with his wife, Edith, just the three of them. And Essel would come home and tell me stories. Dr. Schaefer is so weak, he would wake up in the morning on the coach, and he was so weak he couldn't put his own socks on. His wife would have to bathe him, dress him, and he would, he would rally himself and pray, God, please give me the strength to do my lecture today. And he would walk off the bus and do a 45-minute lecture at a, in, a, in a very influential place in academia or otherwise, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and to be an authentic disciple of Jesus in the world that's wicked and perverse. And he did that all the way to the end of his life. His last lecture was, was 10 days before he died. And our friend and parishioner, Esther Love, was with him the whole way. Isn't that amazing? Just remarkable. Nobody, if asked, would want to be among those who fall away. I mean, if I ask you today, you, you want to be a person who falls away from your faith? You say, well, no. I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that? It's nobody's purpose to do that. But the fact is that you have seen some of your children fall away from the faith. You've seen your friends fall away from the faith. Some of you have seen your business associates that you would have predicted would never fall away from their faith, they've fallen away from their faith, walked away from their relationship with Jesus, and you have no desire to do so. I mean, if we took a poll today, no one here following Jesus would actually say, okay, I think I want to do that before I'm done. Just fall away. 
but some of you will unless you take, the, you take heed and follow, follow the advice that Scripture makes plain. For example, first thing you need to do is examine yourself. Examine yourself. Look at 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? In other words, make sure you are a Christian. Just double back on that. You're not a Christian because you grew up in church, for example. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You're not a Christian if you have lived a good life. You are not a Christian if you have served in the church and have done great things for God. You're not a Christian if, you've, if you have faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for 41 years in the same church. I'm not a Christian because of what I do. And you are not a Christian because of what you have, you have done. That's not the way it works. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? What do you mean? But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And Jesus said, then I will tell them plainly, look, I never knew you. You, had, you didn't have a relationship with me. I know all the good things you were doing were in my name, but I did, you didn't know me. So apart from me, now let me put this statement on the screen. I want to make this plain. Jesus is not saying that good works don't matter. He's saying that they won't get you to heaven. Test yourself. Examine yourself. Make sure you're ready. See, God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. <clears throat> have you personally placed your trust, faith, and hope in Jesus Christ? to deliver you safely to the presence of God someday. Not because of how good you are, your good performance, your good things, your good works, and, there's, and, and what are good things? They're good. But they're not adequate to cause you to arrive safely in heaven. The way you get to heaven is by placing your trust, your whole trust, your whole expectation on the finished and final and perfected work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It's not what we do, it's what he has already done. And when we place our trust and hope in him, this is what causes the righteousness of God to clothe us before him. So examine yourself to make sure you're a Christian. The second thing is to encourage yourself along the way. You may recall this uh, event uh, recorded in 1 Samuel 30. David and his army had gone to chase the enemy one day and they chased the enemy, and the enemy outsmarted and outflanked them. And while David and his army were away from the camp where their families were living, their wives and their children were all there, the enemy came in and stole the wives and the children. So when David and his army returned to the camp, the women and children were gone. So all of these warriors, their families were missing. They didn't know what had happened to them. They don't know if they had been killed or just taken into slavery. It was just horrible. And David's men were so distraught, they were so, they were so disappointed in David's leadership for allowing this to happen that they threatened to kill him. And so let's just be done with David. We can't trust his leadership anymore. 
and maybe we can rescue our family or whatever. They were just beside themselves, and David found himself completely alone. Now listen to your pastor. There will be a moment, maybe some of you are in this moment right now, when you are all alone. Groups are good. Friends are good. Fellowship circles are important. Attending a church where the, where the truth of God's word is faithfully proclaimed week after week after week, that's helpful. That's, that's all encouraging. But there will come a, a time in your life at some point when you find yourself alone, just like David did that day. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. Here's what it says about David. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Wow. Under those circumstances? Man. You must not wait for someone else to do this for you. You must not wait. You must learn to do this for yourself. I found myself in that moment from time to time. I just felt like I'm all alone. I'm all alone in the world. I'm by myself. I'm, I'm at a crossroads and I'm alone. So what am I going to do? And I've learned over the years that I can encourage myself in the Lord. The way I do it, I just simply remind myself of the attributes of God, the characteristics of God. Okay, God is good. God is merciful. God is forgiving. God is light. God is love. God, God is faithful. And I, and I remind myself of the attributes of God, and I worship God. God, I thank you that you're loving. I'm not, but you are. I thank you that you're faithful. I'm not, but you are a faithful God, wonderful God. You're so faithful. Thank you. And so I worship God, and then, and then I just count my blessings. God, let me just rehearse in my own mind some of the benefits of knowing you in my life over the years, and then I go through the list. You've been good in this area and that area and the other area, and this at that moment and that other season, you have been faithful. You have been good. You've been reliable. You've been trustworthy. You are a good God, and I count my blessings. And what I discover when I worship God and count my blessings is I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged in my spirit. I am not alone. God is with me. I have evidence that God is not only with me now, he's always been with me. He promised to never leave me nor forsake me, and I believe he's with me now. And it's encouraging myself. You've got to learn to do that, to encourage yourself. It's so important. You've got, to, you've got to figure out how to do that. And then finally, you need to exercise yourself. It's in the same vein. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with godless myths, old wives' tales rather. Train yourself, train yourself to be godly. Do you hear that phrase? Train yourself. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So he said, look, you can, you can work out your body physically, and that's, that's valuable. But listen, there's an even higher value, and that is to exercise and train yourself spiritually to engage those. If you want to be confident and strong in your faith, you must keep growing 
in your faith. Now, here's something I've observed. This is a temptation. I understand this temptation. Many people, when facing trials, decide to put their relationship with God on a shelf and wait until the storm passes. It's the worst possible reaction. In my case, what happens in my psychology is, is I get in the middle of a storm, I get through a, a bad season, and I just go, God, what have you gotten me into now? And so I actually, I actually assume God's, God's responsible for this. <laughs> and maybe he is in part it from time to time. And so it makes me go, well, listen, if you're my friend, who needs enemies? And so this is, this is the way my goofy mind sometimes works. And so I, I kind of push God. My tendency to, is to push him away. It's exactly the wrong impulse. Wrong. No, it's the opposite. Don't run from God. Lean into God. Even if, even if you can't track what God's doing, what he's trying to teach you, it's confusing to you. It makes you wonder if God can be true. Whether, you, whether you're in a moment like that or not, what you do is lean toward God. It's, it's the moment where you say, look, uh, God, I'm not, I'm not sure this is going to work out hanging out with you, but I got nowhere else to go. You're my best option. And so, I'm, so you lean toward God. It's so important. And so you keep moving. You keep moving forward. You keep leaning into God. You keep leaning forward. If you're going through hell, here's the most important thing if you're in hell right now. Keep moving. You don't want to stay there. You want to pass through. I'm going through hell. Great. Keep your pace because sooner or later you'll pop out on the other side. If you're stopped, then you become a target. We're, we all become targets when we slow down and stop in our faith. If you're going to be a target, then be a moving target. Keep moving. Keep moving toward God, leaning in his direction. Revelation chapter 2, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Have you heard this phrase, first love? Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember when you were a first believer? Remember when you were white out for God? Those of you who have kind of lost your passion, lost your way, remember how, how enthused you were about the whole thing? This, the admonition is to go back to those same practices. If you don't repent, he said, it's not going to end well for you. You were on fire. But something happened. Life happened. Your faith got marginalized. So get back to the first things. What are those things? Get back to prayer. Get back to reading the Bible. Get back to worshiping God. Get back to meaningful connections. Run around with people who have the same worldview as you and the same values as you. Get back on track. Do the things you did before. And here's the promise. This is from Jude 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling... To him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Can you feel that? He's able to keep you going and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all the ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Now, that's a promise right there. Based on the goodness, faithfulness, and majesty of Almighty God. Not about you, not about your ability, not about your capacity, but to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is such good preaching. Listen, I don't know, I don't know what you... 
I don't know what you put in the offering today, but on the way out, put another zero on it because it's saying, get what you pay for. So can we just say, praise God for a God who will never let us go? Who's good on his promise to never leave us nor forsake us? To begin a good work in us and then be faithful to complete it? Glory to God. Maybe you've been a Christian for five, five days or five weeks or five months. And right now you're enthused. You're enthused to know that you've submitted your life to a God who will keep you and stay with you. Where you're looking at a guy who's followed Jesus for 51 years. And let me just give you my testimony. God is a faithful God. God is a reliable God. Don't walk away from him. Listen, you're looking at a guy, I've already said this, I'm not impressed if you walk away from your faith. Come on, man. Really? How horrible is that? What are you doing? What are you thinking? One of our young staff introduced me to a guy named Andy Squires. He's a, he's a big blogger, and uh, young millennials and Gen Zers like him. And I want to close the sermon today with a quote from him. Uh, he's, he, he summarizes it well, this whole idea. Look on the screen with me. He said, it's okay if you don't deconstruct your faith. It's okay. Are you receiving that permission? It's okay not to deconstruct. Really, it's fine if you don't. Practice subversion. Practice resistance. Go to church. Go to Sunday school. Go to youth group. Potluck. Feel free to not apologize for it. Read the Bible even if you don't understand it. Read the Bible and come alive. Give money. Give time. Feel free to not deconstruct. Feel free to not have a crisis of faith. I mean, it's okay if you do have a crisis of faith, but feel free not to manufacture one. (laughs) This next phrase are, are profound, I think. Doubt is normal, but it's not as normal as faith. Do you hear that? We are hardwired to believe. That is, that is absolutely true. God has made us to be in intimacy with him. Don't fetishize your doubts. Of course, life is full of crises which seem to contradict God's existence. I do not care. The abyss does not scare me. It is fair to critique the inadequacies of mental ascent, but go ahead. Go on up that mountain of belief. Christ isn't at the top. He is the mountain, and it will feel like at times he is resisting you but you'll soon see that the obstacles he allows are simply the places where you will discover the truth of your testimony. Resist the pressure to start a new religion. Resist the pressure to buy someone else's new piecemeal religion. Don't do drugs. Stay married if you can. Resist graceless religious fervor. Conform to the image of Christ. Take seriously Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Take these teachings into your heart and live your whole life by them. You are the salt of the earth. Amen. Amen and amen. Couldn't agree more. Now let's pause and pray. Lord, we thank you today that while there is a prediction of a falling away, that there is absolutely no indication 
that any of us have to be part of it. And indeed, just the opposite is true, that you've called us to be the salt of the earth. You've called us to be the light of the world. You've called us to be faithful, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ so that when people see how we live and what we do and where we place our hope, that it will provoke the world to jealousy. Lord, I pray that you would give us such grace, such meaningful grace, that even those who have stepped away from the faith will want to come home, just like the prodigal son. Come back home to the faith, and that once again, they will embrace their first love and find passionate intimacy with you. And for all of us, Lord, we pray that your grace would continue to sustain us and keep us. We know that you are able to keep us from stumbling. So we submit afresh and anew our lives into your care. You are the one who is able, so we trust and rely on you. And in all these things, we pray that Jesus Christ will be honored, glorified, and praised. In his holy name we pray. And the people said, amen, amen. Now, could I encourage you just to remain seated, kind of stay reflective right now, prayerful. And as Nate uh, leads us in this little song, that uh, it'll be an opportunity for you to extend more prayer to God. Thank you.